The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jalen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. You're listening to the 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jalen Nye on 630 Chad, Edmonton's news and conversation station. Here's guest host Morgan Black and Brad Whisker. I pulled in the Nazareth. I was feeling about half past dead. I just need to find some place where I can lay my head. Hey, mister, can you tell me where a man might find a bed? He just grinned and shook my hand. I know it was all he said. Well... 50 years ago today, hundreds of thousands of people descended upon a New York farm for Woodstock in 1969, and we welcome to the show music commentator Eric Alper. Eric, as a person who loves music as much as you do, as passionate as you are, you must be giddy on a day like today. This was a a monumental occasion in music history. I'm I'm not so giddy about that. I'm more giddy that I accidentally took the brown acid, even though that they told me not to. Um, but I'm giddy. Yeah. You know what? I love anniversaries. I don't care if it's somebody's birth or death or or just, you know, to mark a momentous occasion like Woodstock. It's a chance to put music back in the spotlight and talk about all the fun stories and, and talk about the things that, that happened that really created this event that the world has never seen before or since. I mean, there's no way that Woodstock could happen again in the way that it did. Well, that's exactly it. How did this all get going, Eric? Um, Well, you know, before social media and before cell phones, um, there was actually uh, the ability for people to to get together with an idea. And that's exactly what Michael Lang, who was one of the creators of it, um, got together with a bunch of his friends and decided that with the little amount of music industry experience that they had, they wanted to replicate what was the Monterey Pop Festival that happened the year before in uh, in California. And that was with Janis Joplin and Otis Redding, but they felt like they wanted to do something on the East Coast. And uh, they just started making phone calls. And although that the first place that they wanted to have it was a place called Howard Mills Industrial Park in Rock Hill, New York, which is just, uh, it's near Middletown, New York. Um, but, you know, they were kind of talking to the locals and the local city hall. And those people were so terrified of around 30,000 people descending on their small town that they thought that the hippies would absolutely destroy that town in terms of toilet use or in terms of food use and security and parking that they said no right away. So that was the first place that they went to, and it turned out that that wasn't good. But then there was a local farmer um, that was just near there named Max Yazgur, and Max actually donated his 600-acre farm and that was where Woodstock ended up being built but he had no idea that there would be over a half a million people again he just thought maybe 30,000 people tops. So we got a little bit more than he bargained for when he decided to host the festival at his farm. <laughs> yeah I, I think that's where chocolate milk actually comes from now. I think it freaked out the cows on his farm so much 
that they started making chocolate milk instead of regular milk. I mean, <laughs> nobody had any idea because, you know, once you're at a place like Woodstock and you happen to be one of the first couple of thousand people there, there's no way to call up your friends and say, oh, you need to come on down. And so the fact that 600,000 people all collectively thought that this was going to be a good place to go is astounding to me because even 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 Instagram influencers don't even have that ability. You know, even a Selena Gomez, like a, like a Selena Gomez or Jay-Z, they can't make a half a million people just show up on, you know, a couple of days notice. But that's exactly what happened. Speaking of influence, Eric, can you take us into some of the careers that Woodstock helped launch or who became bigger than they ever were after playing? Yeah, for sure. You know, Jimi Hendrix was the highest paid performer. He got paid $18,000 at the time, and that's worth about $125,000 in today's terms. And just to put that in perspective, $125,000 to a concert right now is about 125th of what Ed Sheeran makes by himself. So that doesn't seem like a lot of money because it really isn't. Um, Creedence Clearwater Revival, who was one of the major artists because they released five albums within the 18-month period exploded right after Woodstock and they got paid $10,000. But artists that really didn't tour a whole lot in America, artists like The Who got paid $6,000. And even artists like Sha Na Na built a career well after Woodstock because of appearing there. They got paid $700. But if you talk to the members of Sha Na Na, they'll tell you that they actually got paid a dollar and they had to split that 18 ways of, between the band and the roadie. So there were a lot of artists that were kind of known that started their superstar careers, but certainly it helped artists like Carlos Santana reach legendary status. And for a lot of people, it was their first taste of world music, watching Ravi Shankar and Richie Haven perform to crowds of up to 250, 300,000 by the time that the festival opened. Eric, what's almost even more impressive is the list of bands and artists that didn't show up. It's endless. It's iconic. Yeah, it's, it's almost like if you had a hit, you were contacted. It's kind of like their version of Live Aid when Bob Geldof started calling anybody that was on the charts and he kind of threatened to announce them just to embarrass them into saying yes. But the Beatles said no because at the time nobody knew, but they said no because four months later they announced the fact that they were breaking up. Um, but there were a number of artists that that, you know, got turned down essentially if you were if you were a music agent you were just running through the roster but it wasn't an easy sell though in fact even neil young hated his performance and hated the fact that cameras were on stage filming that he told woodstock that he wouldn't allow himself to be in the final product of the soundtrack and the film he ended up being on the soundtrack eventually but the film you can't even see him um and in fact if you listen to the soundtrack the announcer mixed up Crosby, Steele's, Nash, and Young, and they announced Neil Young second, which, you know, is fine, but because he didn't want to be in the film, they actually had to edit the audio portion of it to make it seem like he was never there in the first place. I want to take us into the future a little bit, too, because nowadays they they live stream Coachella. You think of all, all those those 
it's, it would be insane for an artist to say no, to say no, you can't videotape me. So, so how how has Woodstock kind of been the blueprint for Live Aid? I mean, we talk about Coachella, any music festival since. How has Live Aid in or uh, Woodstock influenced it? Yeah, absolutely. It put a dollar sign in front of a lot of different zeros, and you know, artists would never again want to be ripped off by a music festival. And that's not to say that Woodstock didn't, you know, devalue what these artists were worth. But Woodstock lost so much money after the festival that it took them years. In fact, it took them until the soundtrack and the movie to come out until the actual company started making money and then reverting some of those dollars back to the artist. But what it did was it showed people that there's one way how to do a festival. So let's continue to build on that. And that's where you started to see festivals, especially in the U.S. And I mean, on on the Canadian side, you still had you know, the Edmonton Folk Festival or Vancouver Folk Festival, festivals that have been around for 25 and 30 and 40 years, take a look at something like Woodstock as maybe on what not to do, to make sure that there are enough facilities, to make sure that there are enough water supplies and food supplies that are there. But once you had all of the ideas down on paper, you had to realize that, you know, having 30,000 people in one place is could, you know, absolutely be a danger to every single person there. So it became more of a business. And once, of course, Live Aid and AEG, two of the biggest concert promoters in the world, um, started to work with concert promoters and festivals and cities, it became very, very professionally run to make sure that all the all the, there was a dot on every I and crossing on all the T's because, you know, nobody wanted to be held liable for potentially the 40 or $50 million worth of insurance that they had to put out. Eric, that leads perfectly into what I wanted to ask you next, and that's take us into the attendee experience, because it wasn't just about music. It was also meant to be an expose for the art world. And, you know, on top of that, just based on when this festival was held in 1969, a lot of people were using drugs, particularly LSD. And this is something that you wouldn't see on the grounds of a festival today. And I'm speaking of those freakout tents that they had on the property for people that were uh, losing it a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. There, there's actually a lot of festivals now that not only have medical and ambulance and emergency staff on hand, um, but they're very well versed on perhaps all the drugs that could be consumed within that area. And that's everything from, you know, bad pot to what happens when you mix alcohol with this particular drug. They're pretty experienced when it comes to that. Um, because again, you know, th- those liability issues are just too great for an insurance company to take on a music festival as a client. But, you know, Woodstock, which is an absolute free-for-all, it's where that line, if you remember Woodstock, you weren't there, really comes from because there were just so much rampant of, of drugs and alcohol and sex that it actually turned out that there were more births during Woodstock than deaths, which is just a minor miracle when you think about 600,000 people all converging in one spot. But, you know, in taking a look at the pictures and watching the films and speaking to artists that were there, it was a giant mess. I mean, you know, not only did it rain and therefore it caused so much mud and dirt, but the the opportunity for disease to spread through that that place um, was pretty insurmountable. And and it was just a, a... 
uh, a great thing that more people didn't get hurt. But, you know, you couldn't have that today. You couldn't have that free-for-all of selling, you know, a couple of thousand tickets, but 600,000 people showing up. The, there would be security guards at every single opportunity to make sure that those patrons feel safe, especially in this day and age where we've seen gun violence happen freely um, in certain places and in certain festivals. Eric, do you think that Woodstock is romanticized too much when, I mean, as you list all these things that do not necessarily sound like the ideal music festival, do you think that we, we put a spin on it that makes it sometimes better than it actually was in those, in those ways? No, because I because I think what tends to happen is people tend to forget the really bad things that happen during any occasion, especially in our own collective memories or even you and I when, you know, it's, it's why sometimes we go back to that boyfriend or girlfriend, even though that we split up with them in the first place. We just want to always go back to the garden of love and, and have those amazing memories. And Woodstock is certainly no exception. I think that we romanticize it even more today because so many things things have changed because social media has the opportunity to reach so much more people in a faster way to get people out to an event or to take care of advertising instead of sending in mail order tickets. The caliber of artists is astounding. Even to this day, when you realize that these artists, you know, some of them were reached their popularity peak you know, 45 or 50 years ago, we're still continually listening to The Who and Jimi Hendrix and The Grateful Dead and Santana. And these are are all fairly active artists for the most part when you look at at that soundtrack with Crosby, Steele, Nash and Young. And, you know, all four of them are still active and touring for the most part. Um, So you tend to look back on it and say there was no way that something like this could have ever happened again because, um, you know, it would be it would be just an awful lot of money. And I don't think that anybody really truly wants to take the risk in something like that. Eric, before I let you go, I just want to ask you this. I mean, we all remember Woodstock in 99 and what a disaster some of those performances turned into. I mean, there was allegations of sexual assault, rape. There was the riot during the Limp Bizkit concert, but it went on and and, and the festival wrapped up. But then there was the intent this year to have a 50th year anniversary special and that thing just crumbled. What the heck happened this year that this festival just never really took off or got off the ground? I, I think part of the blame has to fall on Michael Lang, who was the co-creator of Woodstock in 1969, and then all, also had a very big part in the 99 version of it as well. And I think part of it is that the ideals that he had fit neatly in back in 1969, but not in 2019. I, I think that the artists that he wanted to have perform and that he lined up to perform, people from Smashing Pumpkins to Black Keys to, um, to Jack Black, they were... Uh, sorry, Jack White. They were they were all set, but I think when the investors put in anywhere between fifteen and twenty million dollars for the festival to happen, there were a number of rumors that actually became true. They the organizers didn't have the permits from the city to put on the festival. There wasn't any security contracts in order to make sure that there was enough police and security guards and so when you have those two things you have to play nice and you have to play ball with the city to make sure that you have their local support and Woodstock 2019 never had that despite the fact that the organizers were 
you know, kept bringing down and breaking down all the rumors in the media that it was okay, it was okay, it was okay, until three weeks before the actual festival. Remember, tickets hadn't even gone on sale yet. Three weeks before the festival, they finally gave in and canceled the whole thing, which probably was the best move, not necessarily financially, but just in terms of a sigh of relief, because that was going to be a disaster waiting to happen. All right, that is the voice of Eric Alper, a music commentator, and you can follow him on Twitter at that Eric Alper. Eric, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks so much for having me.